I'm Jessica Duenas, and this is Bottomless to Sober, the podcast where I talk about anything and everything related to life since my transition from bottomless drinking to a sober life. Hey everyone, on today's episode, I am really, really excited. I have a really inspirational person on the call. We've got Martin Lockett, who is currently a motivational speaker, author, and counselor. And why the reason why I love his story and invited him is because he recently celebrated his two-year anniversary um, from finishing out his 17 and a half year incarceration after a deep UI crash. And so I invited him onto the podcast really to tell his story, but more importantly, to carry that message of hope that no matter what we go through, we can actually go through and overcome and rise above whatever we face. And so thank you, Martin, so, so, so much for coming on again. It it really is an honor. And um, yeah, let's go ahead and get started. So introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your story. How, what was your upbringing like? Sure. Well, thank you again for having me. It's truly an honor to be here. And so again, my name is Martin Lockett and a DUI fatality that I caused and, uh, on New Year's Eve of 2003 is, is essentially why I'm here. But obviously, before I go into the, the details of that fateful night, I like to back up and explain obviously how I got to this point. So I grew up in Portland, Oregon in the 1980s. And if anybody is familiar with Portland, Oregon, or you've heard about it on the news, you know, the whole keep Portland weird mantra and the, the, the naked bike rides that they do, you know, very liberal city and state. Let me just say that it was it was vastly different back then. So I grew up in a very impoverished, crime ridden neighborhood. It was riddled with um, uh, crack cocaine and drive by shootings and gangs coming up from California fighting for territory at that time. So it was a it was it was it was a war zone frankly. Um, however, and thankfully, I had the, the great fortune of being raised by two loving, nurturing parents. I have a twin brother and two older sisters. And so we were a very tight-knit family. My dad worked hard to support the family. My mom stayed home to take care of the kids. And life was pretty standard for a working, you know, uh, lower slash middle income family at that time. And so things didn't really change for me until I got to high school. So like a lot of kids, you get to high school, it's imperative that you have somebody to hang out with. You have a, a group or a clique or whatever the case, you just want to be accepted. And I was incredibly shy. And so this made it very difficult for me to kind of just, you know, be that social butterfly and meet new kids and, you know, things like that. And so I remember that I, I kind of gravitated to kids who actually happened to live in my neighborhood, but I had never met. And I'm thinking this is this is because my parents, you know, actively did everything they could to keep us from them. But um, nonetheless, this became my hangout crew. And like, you know, a lot of kids, we did all sorts of things we should not have been doing. And I remember we had gone to a party around 14, 15 years of age, and we're hanging out with these 16, 17, 18 year olds. And I remember the guy we were hanging out with, who was wildly popular, he had handed my brother and me um, a drink, a beer. And I remember we're looking at each other thinking there's there's no way we can drink these beers because mom and dad would absolutely kill us. We were not raised this way. But we also had made the, the mental calculation that if we're going to hang out in this peer group and be accepted and be cool and be liked and all that fun stuff, then we got a drink. So I remember... I cracked the beer. I took a few swigs off of the, that disgusting liquid. And all I remember was in that moment, my, my chest heated up and I'm feeling warm and fuzzy. And then I remember all my inhibitions came down and it was like a miracle that I could finally freely mingle with people that I had never met and not break out in a cold sweat. Right. I could talk to girls and not fumble over my words, you know? And, and so I'm thinking, I'm thinking, this is like, this is awesome. This is, this is the Martin that I had always wanted to be and felt that I was just, um, you know, constrained by my, by my shyness. And so for the first couple of years, it was really just that social lubricant and, you know, um, uh, doing it in social settings is, is, was my relationship with alcohol. It wasn't until a couple of years later, um, at age 16, 
that things, you know, took a took a much different turn. So question in terms of your introduction to alcohol, did your parents know or were you able to kind of keep that a secret from them? You know, that's a good question. And I think in those early days, we more or less, I say we, my brother and I, I think we more or less kept it a secret because we, we, we never drank at home. We only did it outside of school. And so like when we would come home, we would instantly go straight upstairs, right? So our, our rooms were upstairs and my mom would always hang out downstairs. And my dad was working the swing shift. So he was gone from two o'clock in the afternoon uh, before we got out of school all the way until midnight, right? And so he, you know, he wasn't really involved in, in terms of, you know, being around the house in the evening when we were coming back drunk. So I think we were able to conceal it for a while until we started to get in trouble with the guys we were hanging out uh, at school with and started to go to jail for riding around in stolen cars and stealing from stores and getting caught and things like that. And that's when everything, you know, kind of really came to the forefront. Gotcha. And that's like when you're kind of heading into turning 16 and things changing. Exactly. And so by 16 years old, I had been to juvenile detention center a couple of times, been placed on probation Got kicked out of um, my high school at the end of my freshman year because I passed out drunk in the classroom. And I remember um, vaguely, it was my parents were called to the school. They had to wheel me out in the wheelchair because I couldn't even stand on my own two feet. And I'm slumped over and I'm turning green and purple. And I remember my mom was so concerned. She called the poison control center to see if I had drank enough you know, to kill myself. And um, thankfully, that wasn't the case. I just went home and had a terrible, terrible hangover and was throwing up, you know, all day. But that was when they knew that that things were were getting out of hand for me. So I started the next school year in an alternative school that I had to complete 45 days. And it was a treatment based school. And remarkably, when I went to that school and I'm away from all of my peers, um, I'm getting straight A's and B's. Right. And because my grades had you know, started to slip during that freshman year because I was skipping classes and drinking and things like that. And so I'm getting back on track and I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on my academics and I'm doing group therapy in the, you know, um, uh, in the school every day, we had to do that and things were going well, but I couldn't wait to get back to my high school because I didn't know these kids in this alternative school. These weren't my, you know, these weren't my guys. So as soon as I get back to my, my regular high school, it's, it's on again. We are drinking. We are skipping school. We're smoking weed now. We're stealing cars. We're just running amok. And at this point, I think my parents had, I, I don't, I, it, it seemed like they kind of conceded that these boys are out of control. You know, my mom's health was, was deteriorating because she had been sick, you know, um, pretty much our whole lives and she was just getting worse. And my dad was working to support a six, a six, um, six member family. And we were just we were just too much. And so we kind of really took advantage of that and just kind of had our way with, you know, whatever we wanted to do. So during that time period and here like kids are, you know, as someone who previously was in the K through 12 setting and work with like middle schoolers and high schoolers, I feel like there's sometimes there's a light where they it like will come on, even if it's temporarily where they have a total complete sense of what's going on. But then they lose sight of that and they lose sight of the future. So like when you were in that adolescent mindset, were you thinking of the future ever? Or was it just like you could only see your your neighborhood like the day ahead of you? That is such an astute observation. So, yes. So between the sophomore freshman and sophomore years were terrible. But when I'm going into junior year and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm turning 17 and I know high school is not forever, I am starting to think about my future and what do I want to do beyond high school? So at this point, I start to buckle down a little bit. I, um, so I'm going to regular school, high school, but then I'm also taking night school classes to make up for, for what I missed out on my freshman and sophomore years. And I'm thinking about becoming an architect because I loved art. And that's the one class I was in advanced art for three out of the four years in high school. And that's the one class that I went to every single day. I may skip the other six classes, but I definitely made sure that I was in art class because I felt like that was my sanctuary. 
that was when I felt most like myself. I didn't have to put on this front and this facade because really this whole time as I was drinking and skipping school and stealing cars and smoking weed and doing like that wasn't me. Right. But that's the identity I felt that I had to assume to gain accept acceptance from the kids that I felt I needed to be accepted by. Right. But that was not me. And I, I didn't fully buy into that because I knew that I was capable of more. And so now I'm starting to I'm starting to turn it around. Right. I'm getting better grades. I'm still drinking. I'm still smoking weed, but I'm, I'm, I'm showing up to my classes more and I'm really trying to make an effort. But I'll tell you, it was it was also it was also kind of a, 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 a conundrum, if, if that's the right word, that I was in. Because on one hand, I, I knew that I wanted to, to, to be more than what was around me, right? But I also felt on one hand that it, it, it wasn't possible because nobody around me, coming from where I came from and was living the life I was living, actually turned out to, you know, to be successful. I mean, I'm sure it had happened, obviously, but there were no direct examples around me that I could look to and say, oh, well, that guy made a bunch of mistakes and he turned it all around and look at him now. Right. And so I, I, I never really bought into the idea that I could I could actually become successful. So I I I, I drank in order to suppress those 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 negative feelings about myself and the, the poor self concept that I had about myself. Um and and just believing that, that there was a very low ceiling on my life and that no matter what I did, I was not going to be able to break through that ceiling. That's that's so powerful. And again, just from my years as a as a teacher, right? Um, I was always really passionate about trying to expose my students to the world outside of their neighborhood because if they didn't see it in their own community, you know, they may not believe that they can do it too. And so I think that, you know, for anybody who's listening, who randomly is a teacher, because I have quite a few folks who are educators following, I think this is a testament to the value of that exposure for kids early on um, to different things. Or, I mean, just the fact that you're talking about art class and how precious that was for you and how often, you know, kids get, those are the first classes to go the second they struggle academically, when sometimes those are the classes that are the most like life-saving. So it's just really powerful to hear your reflection about your life as a teen, because there's so many teens today that I hold really near and dear to me. And it's just a really powerful reflection. So just, just thanks for sharing about that. You're absolutely right. And I just came from speaking at an event. Uh, it was called the coalition of black men in Portland, Oregon. And I was speaking to middle school kids and this program is so awesome because they take these kids from the inner cities out horseback riding or canoeing or, you know, um, uh, to, to spend a day with the pilot. Right. And so just exposing them to all these things that they otherwise would not have exposure to, it, it gets them thinking in ways that they hadn't before. Like, wow, this is something that's kind of cool. Maybe I am interested in this. Maybe I should explore that. If they never get the exposure, however, then how will they ever know what they're interested in and what they're passionate about? Right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that was, that was, um, so that was where I was with that. And so because I didn't have the proper coping mechanisms at 16, 17 years old, even though my parents were lovely and I would never, never cast any aspersions on them. It was never, the environment was never conducive to one talking about these feelings. And so I felt like, I felt like I had to kind of deal with it myself and I had no idea where to start. So the alcohol at that point went from being a social lubricant and just kind of a way to loosen up in a social setting to now being, I absolutely need this to not feel so badly about myself and to not have to think about, you know, where my life may be in five or 10 years, because frankly, it just, you know, it was, it was, it was bleak as far as I was concerned, there was no way I was going to be successful. And so I compared myself and this, this was certainly, certainly made everything worse is that, you know, I went to school in a pretty good neighborhood, a very middle-class predominantly white neighborhood. And so my, my peers, if, if you will, um, at 16 years old, they got cars, right? Their dads worked downtown in the high rise building, carrying a briefcase and wearing a suit to work every day. And that was not my family. Right. And so when these kids would go home to their manicured lawns and clean neighborhoods, I got on the bus and headed back to the hood to, you know, dirty streets and, you know, just just, you know, dilapidated houses and buildings. And that was my life. And so I thought what that conveyed to me 
at, at around age 12 or 13, it conveyed to me that there was something inherently wrong with me as a black person. Because why is it that all the white people I see, at least at, this part, at that time, that's all I knew as a kid, all the white people I see, they get to live this way. And all the black people I know, we have to live this way. So what's inherently wrong with me that would confine me to live that way is what I thought. And, th- and that just it just compounded and compounded. And so I was torn between identities. You know, I would literally I would hang out with my with my friends in the hood and wear the gangster clothes and talk the gangster talk and, and do all that stuff, carry guns and all that. And then I would literally because my parents, you know, they, they made us get jobs after after school so we could you know learn the value of a hard earned dollar and all that. And I worked in an ice cream parlor. And all of my coworkers were white. And I remember I would bring a spare change of clothes to hang out with them after work because to me, they symbolized success because they came from the middle class neighborhoods and had, you know, dads with, you know, with Mercedes Benzes. And so I would bring a change of clothes that was Tommy Hilfiger, Ralph Lauren Polo and dress, you know, the, you know, the preppy, the preppy clothes uh, uh, attire and change my vernacular and, and, and speak the way that they would speak as best I could to be accepted by them. Right. And so I'm literally um, navigating between two worlds to gain acceptance from two totally different peer groups and honestly not feeling like I like I belonged in either one. So you can imagine how deeply conflicting that was for a 16, 17 year old kid um, feeling like he had nowhere to turn to be able to really express how he was feeling. And so that's why alcohol, alcohol was my best friend. That was my comfort when I needed it. So after high school. Uh, I, I, my friends and I continued with our, our criminal behavior and I didn't graduate high school. And I remember that same ice cream parlor that I was working at. Um, I quit on bad terms and I wanted a way to get back at them. And so I sat down with four of my friends at the time and we conspired to rob them. And I knew I wasn't going to go in there and hold anybody at gunpoint. Cause that just wasn't, wasn't who I am. Right. Wasn't who I was. But I, I agreed to to you know draw a blueprint of the layout and tell them where the money was and how many people would be in there and where they would be and what time closing is and all. So I, I, I conspired, right? I gave them the blueprint. So they go in there, they commit the robbery, they get away with it, they go on a string of robberies, they get away with them until they get caught, and then it all comes crashing down on us. And so at 19 years of age, uh, five of us were sent to prison with sentences that ranged from five to 31 and a half years. And so I, I got a five and a half year sentence for my part in that robbery. And of course my family is, is devastated. They're crushed. And, but they, again, very loving, nurturing family stuck by my side, encouraged me to get my GED, return to my Christian roots, turn over a new leaf. And I wanted to make them proud because this is my family. And so I did all of that, right? I got my GED. I became a tutor, I stayed out of trouble. I, I started going to church every day and, or every week and um, and graduated from a, um, a boot camp program that allowed me to release early after serving three and a half years. So I get out at 22 years of age. I go to my parents' house. I get a job at a warehouse. I attend treatment groups in the evening and I enrolled in community college courses because I wanted to become a nurse at the time. And so everything is going well at least seemingly from the outward perspective, you would think that my life was going well, but I actually also allowed myself to start drinking again because I had, I had deluded myself into things. So when I was going to church and all that, when I got out, you know, my friends from the neighborhood guys who weren't in prison, obviously they were going to clubs and meeting women and having fun and drinking and partying and I was sitting at home by myself because like they really weren't interested in, in the things that I was interested in. And so I felt that I was missing out at 22 years of age. And so I, I told myself, well, I can hang out with these guys, but I don't have to drink. Right. I can do that. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. If you you yeah. hang out in the barbershop long enough, you're going to get a haircut at some point. So that's what happened. And so that's why I started to slowly drink again. But I felt because I had a job and I paid my bills and I saved up enough money to buy my first car and I moved out of my parents' house and, you know, outwardly, it looked like I had it together. And I allowed that to be my excuse to start drinking and driving every day, which leads us to why we're here 
today. Gotcha. And yeah, I mean, for so many people, right, you think that because you can check off the boxes of taking care of outer responsibilities that you look good on the outside that you can't have a problem, but alcohol doesn't have a type. That's right. You're absolutely right. And there, there are so many very, very highly functioning uh, people in society, very successful by most people's standards. People in society have have problems with alcohol. Um, they are dependent on alcohol. They suppress their emotions. They don't know how to cope well with stress and anxiety. There's so many um, uh, correlations between mental health issues, certainly undiagnosed mental health issues or diagnosed for that matter, and substance abuse, right? Because people tend to self-medicate because for whatever reason, they don't want to go get a, an actual medical prescription for, um, you know, a, a, a psychotropic. And so, um, and alcohol is, is everywhere and, and, and it's socially acceptable, right? It's the most socially accepted uh, substance um, intoxicant that there is in our society, and so right. it, it's, it's hard for people to to um, kind of see that there is a problem with a substance that everybody uses um, on a daily basis. Not everybody, but certainly a, a, a right. vast number of people. And so, anyway, um, so I I fell into the habit of when I would get off work every day at the warehouse, I would go to the store and I would buy four twenty four ounce cans of malt liquor. That was my, that was my, my drink of choice. And it was disgusting. I know, but I wanted to get the most bang for my buck. And so it was like 8.2, 8.3% only cost me like a dollar 50. I'm all for it. So I did that every single day when I got off work and, and then I would start drinking hard liquor and I would drink that until about 11 o'clock and I would go to sleep. I live with my girlfriend at the time. She she enabled me to drink. And I don't say this to, you know, um, you know, kind of cast aspersions on her because she'll tell you today that, you know, obviously we're not together now, but she would tell you she absolutely enabled me. But she told me, she said, Martin, she said, you are an a-hole when you're not drunk. So I like to keep you with alcohol because you're nicer, mm. you know? And, and when she told me that it was, it was a gut punch because it's like, I don't want to be an a-hole when I'm not drunk, but I knew, I mean, I felt I was, I was more irritable. I had a short fuse. I just wasn't fun to be around unless I was, unless I was, I was drinking. And so, um, so that, that allowed me to be okay with my drinking. She was okay with it. I was okay with it. And it led into new year's Eve of 2003 um, when everything changed. And so I know that that's when you had, the DUI crash, right? That is absolutely when that happened. And so if I can just kind of paint the picture, yeah. um, the day was like any normal day. I, I kissed her goodbye and I traveled from Vancouver, Washington to Portland, which is about a half hour drive over the bridge uh, to a warehouse where I worked at at the time. And I remember we got off work early because of the holiday. And so it's about 1130 in the morning. We get off work. And I remember my boss had kind of joked with us, not kind of, he did joke with us. And he said, now, you guys go out and have a good time tonight, but please do not let me wake up and see you on the front page. Of course, we laughed it off and we clocked out for the day. But that that prophetic statement never, ever, ever left me. And it never will, obviously. And so I remember I left work and I headed straight to the liquor store where I spent my last $10 on a bottle of, of gin. And then I went to my parents' house to hang out with my twin brother because that's where he was living at the time. So I get to my parents' house. I hang out with him. I drink the alcohol over the course of two or three hours. And then he and I had made plans for later that night to attend a, a friend's house party, a guy that we had gone to high school with. And again, as was customary, I went back to the store and I bought my four 24-ounce cans of Old English. Did it every day like clockwork. So I drank those over the course of the next two or three hours again, by myself. And so it's now about eight o'clock. And then my brother and I decided we would go to another friend's house in the meantime to hang out. You know, we didn't want to get to the party too early. So we get to that friend's house and the three of us hang out and we drink a pint of Hennessy between us. And so now it's about 11 o'clock. So we go to exit his apartment and then his mother from the kitchen, you know, she sees us leaving and she yells out, you know, and y'all be careful tonight. You hear? And of course we all reply, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. We'll, you know, we'll be careful. Obviously we had no intentions of being careful that night. Let's be clear. So we get to the party. We see a bunch of old classmates. 
We drink more alcohol, of course. We celebrate. We bring in the new year. Everything is great. We exit the party at about 12, 15 a.m. And the three of us get into my vehicle. And most people at this point, one of the, the, the guys getting into the vehicle would say, hey, man, let me let me drive. You know, you've been you've been drinking too much. It's not safe. You know, let me go ahead and drive. Sadly, um, that was never offered because all of my friends drank and drove every day. So this was this was just par for the course, yeah. sadly. So I take my friend home without incident. I get back onto the freeway to take my brother home. And at this point, all I'm thinking about and feeling is how exhausted I am. Because I've been drinking all day and I had only had one meal from Popeye's at like 4 or 4.30 that afternoon. And so I just want to hurry up and get him home because I, I knew I still had another half hour or so to drive to my house in Vancouver. And I knew I didn't have to work the next day. So I just want to go home and just go to sleep and sleep in and not have to worry about anything. So I, I began to pick up my speed on the freeway to about 80 miles an hour. And this makes my brother nervous. And he says, hey, man, you know, you should you should slow down. You know, the police are out, you know, it being a holiday and all. And I thought for a couple seconds, well, you know, he's kind of right. Right. That makes sense. So I went ahead and slowed down. We exit the freeway about 10 minutes later. So now we're driving in a residential area. And again, I get impatient and I begin to pick up my speed to about 60 miles an hour in a 30 zone. And this time my brother, you know, he gets angry. He's like, slow down before we crash. And I tell him, calm down. I know what I'm doing. I've got this. I've done it a hundred times. But just to appease him, keep him quiet, I went ahead and slowed down. And we drive for about 10 more minutes. And I'm, I'm just about to get into the left-hand turning lane to drop him off at our parents' house. And then he suddenly realizes he's all out of cigarettes. So he said, hey, man, let's, let's go up the street so I can get some cigarettes. I'm all out. And in my mind, I'm thinking, great. There's one more stop that I don't want to have to make. So we drive for a couple blocks and then about two more blocks from that point, there's an intersection. And the, the store we need to get to is just beyond the intersection. And so I'm looking up at the light and the light is yellow. And as intoxicated as I was, I still knew there was no way. There was no way I was going to make this light. But it also didn't matter because I was not going to wait for this light. I want to get these stupid cigarettes. I want to go home and go to sleep. So I immediately punch the gas. I make the decision. I'm going right through. I punch the gas and I become tunnel vision where I don't see anything to the right or left of me. And literally within, I don't know, three, four seconds, just boom. I mean, just, just this earth shattering crash. And then I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember the airbag envelops my face and it feels like I'm being suffocated by a parachute. And I remember my car come so slow winding halt and everything feels like it's going in slow motion. And I, I immediately looked to my right to see if my brother's okay. And he's, you know, he's starting to come out a bit. He's starting to move a little bit. So I'm, I'm relieved. You know, they were both alive. This is good. Guy comes rushing up to the driver's side door, frantically a pedestrian. Are you guys okay? Are you guys okay? Yeah, we're okay. I tell him. And I step out of my vehicle and sadly to this day, I'll never like, this is just a terrible, terrible thing. My instinct, my first instinct was not to go check on the people I had just hit, but rather to assess the damage on my car because because my remember, I'm still dealing with a lot of insecurities and superficiality. And, and, and so my car was my status symbol of success. Right. I finally had this beautiful car that when people saw me in it, they thought that I was I was important. I was somebody. And I'm walking around my vehicle and I'm looking at my custom rims that are completely destroyed the entire front end is smashed inward and i'm devastated because i'm now looking at my prized possession in a heap of crumpled metal and then my brother gets my attention and he starts to point across the street where the car had spun about 70 feet before it stopped and he's pointing over there and he said hey man he said i think i see somebody lying down on the pavement over there and um they don't appear to be moving wow. and in that moment like, obviously, I'm starting to it's starting to resonate and dawn on me the severity and the magnitude of what I just caused, what I had just done. But of course, there's lights and sirens, you know, rushing to the scene. So there's, there's no time to process anything, of course. And so the policemen are there. They're talking to me and they take my brother a few feet away to talk to him. And about three minutes into that interview, that officer had confirmed to me what I had 
in my heart of hearts known to be true, which was that person who was lying on the pavement had perished. And he told me that another passenger was being driven mm. by ambulance to the, the trauma center just blocks away. And so I'm placed under arrest and I'm put into the back of the cruiser and we head for downtown for processing. And from the back seat, I'm listening to the police radio because there's a lot of you know chatter about the crash, as you can imagine. And um, about 10 minutes into that ride, it, it came over the police radio that unbeknownst to me, Apparently, there was another passenger who had been pronounced dead at the scene. And so I'm on my way to jail at 24 years of age, and I am keenly aware of the laws in Oregon, the mandatory minimum sentencing laws that for a DUI manslaughter is an automatic, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's an automatic 10-year sentence day for day, and I've got two of them. So as the police car drives past my parents' block, remember I'm only four blocks away from my parents' house, we drive past their their block and I look down the street one more time and I know that I'm not going to see that house in my neighborhood for the next 20 years. Oof, man, that that is so heavy. Um, I mean, my condolences obviously to those lost and to the loss of years of your life too. Thank you. How, so, I mean, how was it in prison? Cause I think like, that's, that's the part where so many of us give up. That's the part where any young person, you know, could just be like, you know what? Fuck it. You know, um, so yep. how did you rise above that? Because that is so, so heavy, Martin, like so, so heavy. So yeah. Like what happened? I know. Well, one of the things that you said earlier on in the interview, that was pretty powerful when you were a teen, you talked about that you, you hadn't really seen any examples. And so that kept a ceiling pretty low over your head. And from what I do know of your story, there is no ceiling today. And so I'm, I guess I'm curious, like what happened when you were in prison that really changed everything for you? Right. So I'll say that the pivotal moment in, in this whole tragedy and, and in my life and, and, and what motivates me to do what I do today, it came about three days after this crash had happened and I'm in my cell and I'm in, I'm just minding my own business and someone has slid the Oregonian newspaper or statewide newspaper, they slid it underneath my door and I couldn't understand why because I didn't ask anybody to see a paper, but I figured there must be something important in there for me to read. So I pick it up and I begin to thumb through this paper and I see my picture on the front page of one of the sections. And with each paragraph that I read that morning for the first time in several days, you know, my, my faceless victims became people and these people had a story. And their story was that they were recovering addicts who had managed to turn their lives around and had devoted their lives to helping people get clean and sober. They had like 16 and 17 years clean, respectively, the two people that passed away. They were volunteers with Mothers Against Drunk Driving. They were volunteers with Volunteers of America. They would watch women's children so that ladies could attend AA and NA meetings. They were returning home from a clean and sober New Year's Eve party the night that this crash happened when they were struck and killed by a drunk driver. And so the columnist, I remember he said, he he called it a palpable irony that these people who had devoted their lives to helping people get clean and sober would have their lives cut short by a drunk driver. And then he says something at the end, changed my life forevermore. He said, perhaps the person they will have ended up helping the most is the man who's charged with killing them. And it was such a heavy statement. Now, I didn't know what to do with that statement at the time, because again, I'm 24 years old and I know I'm going to prison for about 20 years. So I couldn't fully, you know, understand or appreciate how this tragedy was was supposed to help me in some way. But I also knew what he said was profound and it was my business 
to figure out what those words were supposed to mean for my life. And so for the next like six or seven months, I remember I, I would meditate on that phrase. I would hear it when I would wake up. I would hear it when I'm walking around the track. I would hear it when I'm eating dinner. I would hear it when I'm going to bed. I would pray about that phrase and, and try to get revelation into how I was supposed to apply those words to my life. And then it finally came to me. And I always tell people, you know, it wasn't some supernatural vivid dream or, you know, some thunderous voice from the heavens or anything, you know, like that. But rather just um, me understanding that the only way this tragedy will not be in vain is if I carry on these people's legacies. And if I literally make it my life's mission to do everything I possibly can to ensure that something like this never happens again. So in that moment, in that jail cell, three days after this happened, that was what I committed to. Now, I had no idea what shape that was going to take, what would be available to me in prison toward this end. I just knew I was committed to the mission. And so with that, I take a plea bargain a few months later for 17 and a half years to avoid going to trial and, you know, putting the families through all of that and me potentially getting the maximum of 28 and a half years. Um, and I set out to state prison. And so I figure when I get to state prison, if I'm going to, you know, uh, push toward this mission, I probably should get an education. So at, at the time, they were offering one community college course per term that I could take for $25. And so I said, OK, sign me up. I had a GED. You know, I need I, I need to start getting some college credit underneath my belt. And I guess if I take enough of these classes, they'll they'll give me a degree at some point. I don't really know how this works, but hey, I'm all in. So I do that for the first three years. And then I tragically lose my father very unexpectedly um, three years into my sentence. And through that happening, I was able to secure the funding through his pension and you know life insurance policies and things like that to start to pay for classes um, outside of the prison. So I was taking classes from Louisiana State University and Indiana University, and everything was through the mail. We don't have Internet access or anything like that. So everything had to be done through the mail and, and, and things like that. And so I parlayed all of those credits into an associate's degree in 2010. And then I went on to get a bachelor's in sociology from Colorado State uh, University in 2013. And then I went on to get a master's in psychology from California Coast University in 2016. And so as I'm, you know, taking all these sociology and psychology classes, I'm really starting to peel back the layers of my addiction and my destructive behavioral patterns that started around age 14, 15, 16. I'm starting to understand the 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 psychosocial development and the um you know kind of the 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 thwarted you know development that I went through during those during those years, and it all starts to to make sense to me now where I went wrong and the origins of of, of my problems. And so now I'm using this knowledge to start to mentor young guys in the system who are coming in and looking for a sense of direction and don't, you know, they don't want to join the gang and they don't want to get into the, you know, the, um, you know, the, the, the sexual activities and things like that that goes on in prison a lot uh, where guys are kind of recruited toward that. And they, and they, and they saw how I did my time and these young guys would seek me out. I'd be on the yard, you know, lifting weights or walking around the track or jogging and they would seek me out. And they would talk to me about like deep personal childhood issues and trauma and being sexually molested and like things you don't talk about in prison. But guys knew that I was a safe I was a safe person for that. And so that was that was kind of really reaffirming to me that counseling is, is, is where I needed to be. Right. I felt comfortable doing it. I love mentoring the young guys. I love the fact that they look to me for that. And so I was really starting to find my groove uh, behind behind prison bars in that way. That's so powerful. And so obviously in prison, you know, I know that people can have access to alcohol and illicit substances. I know things like that get around there. Like if you want it, there's a way to get it. Um, but once you transition out, how is it obviously almost what 17 and a half years past. So, and you've had like a wealth of education to also really kind of teach you the root of everything. Like you were saying, you were kind of able to finally peel back the layers, make sense of your own youth, your own childhood, the root of things. And then you've been able to kind of work through that with like um, other young men in prison. 
Um, what about now that you've been out? Like how, first, how do you care for yourself every time that you tell your story? Um, Cause I imagine that's a lot. And then how do you stay alcohol free, sober out here where like you, we said earlier, it's everywhere. Absolutely. And so for the first 12 years of my sentence, I thought that I was in recovery. I'd heard this word recovery thrown around and I, I felt that I was in recovery. I hadn't drank in 12 years and I've got all this education, all this knowledge and blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't until I went through an actual substance abuse treatment program within the, the prison setting, a seven month program, that I understood the difference between sobriety and recovery. I had just been sober. I wasn't in recovery. Right. I'm learning about the, you know, internal triggers and external triggers and relapse warning signs before the actual relapse. And, um, you know, the, the anchors of recovery and, you know, the, the, the biopsycho social spiritual model of, of, of recovery. And so I'm learning all these facets of recovery of a lifestyle that you adopt and not just abstaining from alcohol. Right. That's just that's just sobriety. That's not recovery. And so um, as I'm starting to kind of, you know, uh, put together these building blocks of, of recovery, then I'm really feeling I'm really getting some momentum in, in, in what my new life is going to be beyond prison, because now at this point I've got like three or four years left and I'm looking toward the outside and being released and what's life going to be like. And I'm not going to lie to you, Jessica. There was some trepidation about six months before I got out. There was some trepidation about being released and 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 thinking and feeling that life was 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 probably going to be a little boring sober because I had not been sober and free since I was 14 years old. I mean, I did the the the, the 3 years in prison at 19, but it, it got out and started drinking 3 months later and so I just didn't have a good framework for how life was going to be yeah. as an adult and, and and to be sober and so um, a part of me was 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 worried about that. But I started to go to AA when I was inside. I started in 2016. And so I knew that AA existed out here. So I knew that I could I, I could go to my people, as I say, um, even though I have family and friends that love me to death. But I can't I can't go to them for that type of support. I have to go to people who understands addiction and, 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 what, and what that feels like um, and what that looks like. And so I knew if I did that. And if I kept enough structure in my life to mirror my prison life, because as, as you know, prison is very structured, right? Everything is regimental. You're here at a certain time. You're here at a certain time. You wake up, you go to bed. You do, and so that was kind of my recipe for success. If I keep structure and balance in my life out here, I knew I felt that I would be fine. And I'll say, like, life could not be more fun now. I've been out two years. I just hit two years last month. I have gone skydiving. I have gone surfing. I taught my, I didn't teach myself. I learned how to swim at 43 years of age. Um, I took swimming lessons. And so I just, you know, we have put a swim pool in our backyard. I swim. I go for jogs. I go for walks. I go hiking, just hike to the top of Multnomah Falls in Portland for the first time uh, a couple months ago. Um, I go bowling. I go fishing. Like all these things that I had never done before. And doing them for the first time in my forties. And it feels like, it feels like I'm doing them in my twenties, right? Because it's, it's, it's so new and it's, it's exciting and it's relaxing and it's, it's just, it's great self care. And it's a way for me to decompress when I need to, and to, um, you know, just kind of, just kind of, you know, rejuvenate myself when I need to. And so what I thought was going to be kind of a boring drab, you know, life, frankly, has been the total opposite of that in, in my sobriety and, and being free. So life is amazing. It really is. That That's so beautiful to hear. And so your toolbox right now is AA currently, and then also just kind of keeping like a highly structured day-to-day -day life. Definitely. And so that I go to AA for, I do it online a lot um, for my support, for that type of support. But I have an amazing fiance that I can talk to about anything that's going on. And so that's another thing. So before I didn't know, I didn't really know what a lot of my feelings were or where they were coming from. And I certainly wasn't quick to talk to anybody about what was going on within me. Right. And so I know that in my recovery, you got to do the opposite. So if I was trying to suppress feelings before, then I need to be 
okay, with expressing feelings today. And I work as a, as a drug and alcohol counselor remotely. And so I'm talking to people about recovery efforts and things like that and, and self-care. And, and so, so in, in talking to them about these things, it's really, you know, kind of reinforcing it, you know, within myself, right? Because I'm hearing myself, um, uh, you know, uh, counsel people through these things. And so um, that's an awesome thing. And I stay with uh, the public speaking and, and honoring my victims' lives in that way. I speak at DUI victim impact panels. I speak at conferences. I speak at alcohol highway safety classes. I'm going on a five college tour um, in New York in September. Um, I just, you know, all across uh, high schools, all across the board, um, you know, I have platforms to to tell my story and, and to share that. And so kind of that work and my self-care exercising. I have a workout gym in the basement that I put together myself. It's awesome. But I worked out when I was in prison, right? I jog because I jogged in prison. I like to read books because I read a lot of books in prison. So I tried to keep a lot of those same self-care things that I did in there uh, mirrored out here in the structure. Of course, life is at a much faster pace out here and all of that. But my anchors of, of, of recovery have been steadfast and they've been the most consistent thing in my life. And that's really the recipe for me. That's beautiful. And so what would you say has been like the biggest challenge, like two years into being back in mainstream living? What is the biggest challenge you face? Um, the biggest challenge is, is, is not a challenge yet, but it's something that, that, that is ever present. And that is complacency. And complacency is what tripped me up the last time. And so because the the further I get away from prison in terms of being out, I just hit two years. Right. And so every month and every year that that, that, that passes, I'm further away from prison. And I think the last time I I forgot what it felt like to be in prison. So I started to allow myself to kind of compromise my thoughts that led me back to prison for uh, almost 20 years. And so I don't want the success that I'm having today to lead me into a state of complacency. And then I start to drop off some of these these things that I've, you know, this got me to this point. Oh, maybe I don't need to do an AA meeting. Oh, maybe I don't need to go. You know, I, I can start slacking off on my on my workouts and maybe I don't need to go for a walk. Cause, you know, I've, I've been doing it so long. I can, you know, and it's not that I have to, you know, uh, obsessively do these things, you know, every single day. But they do need to be a regular part of my routine. And so just fighting against complacency when I've had the successes that I've had is really going to I think that's going to that's, that's going to be um, the challenge forevermore and, and staying grounded and staying humble and staying rooted in the things that got me here. Yeah, I mean, I love that. I think the complacency thing is definitely a common concern. I think, yeah, like once we get really comfortable, we start to slack. And then that's when we can always risk absolutely falling back into old patterns, old behaviors, old thinking, um, and just thinking that we can go back to things that really never served us, whether it's alcohol or because, you know, sometimes it's not even about jumping back to alcohol at this point. Sometimes I think, like you said, being in recovery is a lot about that personal development and making sure that, you know, we are checking our mindset, checking how we treat others, checking how we treat ourselves, you know, and eventually if we don't do all those things, yeah, like we'll spiral down to a drink, but sometimes it's not about just jumping straight from a bad day to alcohol. You know, it takes, it's like the whole kind of decline and just being mindful of avoiding that. Um, is there right. anything else you want to share with any listener? I mean, this is so, this was really, really incredibly powerful and, you know, like your vulnerability and, Really, again, I'm so grateful that you are telling your story. You know, so many people try to keep these things under wraps. And I think that, you know, who knows how many lives you change just by sharing your story, right? Because it's like, you never know who's listening and doesn't say anything. Um, There's always the folks who listen and reach out. But, you know, for those people, there's always so many more who hear it and just take it away and don't say anything. Um, So, yeah, any, any last message for anybody listening? Sure. Um, 
and thank you again for for having me. This was this was incredible. Um, you're an awesome host, and you you ask very very pointed um, uh, necessary questions, and so I really really yeah. appreciate the conversation. I would say that for anybody who is hesitant about reaching out for help, because it could be a very daunting thing to see somebody who has you know a year clean or two years clean or five years clean or 10 years clean or whatever the case. And you're thinking there's no way I could ever get there. I can't even stay clean for, you know, two days. Right. And so they just say, well, well, to hell with it. Why, why even try? I would say that, you know, I always come back to, to, to Dr. King's profound statement. I'm just paraphrasing. He said, you know, you don't have to see the whole staircase to take the first step. Mm. Right. You don't have to see how this whole thing is going to look five years from now or two years from now or six months from now or even a month from now, if you just take the first step and I can guarantee you, you're not going to be on that staircase alone, right? There are many, many people who will walk alongside you. I will be one of them. You can reach out to me directly on Instagram at Martin L. Lockett. You can call 988, three simple digits, wherever you are. And there will be somebody who will answer that call, sit with you in whatever space you are in, validate, empathize, give you the support you need, and then ultimately get you connected with resources, mental health resources, substance use resources in your locale and get you connected to to people who care. There are so many people who care. You do not have to do this alone. If you make that first step, you take that first step, you will will see how rewarding life can be sober. Um, That's the life you deserve. We all deserve that life and that's our best life. And, um, and I, I just I just hope anybody who might be on the fence about that would would take that leap of courage and um, and 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 get the help that they need so they can they can have the greatest quality of life that they could possibly ask for. Yes, absolutely. And I'm glad because I was going to say, how can people find you? But you mentioned it, your Instagram and I'll definitely put that in the show links as well. So, again, um, thank you, everybody, for listening Please, please, please reach out to Martin, follow him. If you are an educator, you know, he is a speaker, you know, um, look him up. He also has his website, which I will link in the show notes, which is his name, martinlockett.com. Also an author. So he's got two books, I believe, right? Yes, ma'am. So, you know, you can also um, grab his books. Um, Really, again, just such a powerful speaker, such a powerful story. And just that reminder that no matter where you are, you can always rise up above anything, absolutely anything. Hey, if you are enjoying what you are listening to, I invite you to subscribe and share the podcast, but also go to my website, bottomlesstosober.com and find out other opportunities to work with me from free workshops to writing classes to one-to-one life coaching opportunities. You can schedule a free consultation for that. Everything is available at bottomlesstosober.com. See you then.